It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. Welcome back, everybody. Listen, today is probably going to be one of the most important episodes ever. And the reason for that is because a lot of us who are in business, we sometimes miss the exit strategy, right? I mean, first of all, we're so excited to be in business. That's great. And, and then we think maybe our kids will come in and help us with our business. But the reality is a lot of us put off thinking about the exit strategy. And sometimes that costs us a lot of money. So today on the show, we have best-selling author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you. He's also the host of Built to Sell Radio, ranked by Forbes magazine as one of the world's 10 best podcasts for business owners, and the CEO of Value Builder System, John Warlow, is joining me today, and I'm excited to have John. And just real quick, I should have done this a little bit better, but to, you know, some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about is literally the mechanics of selling a business, resources for established business owners. Uh, a, a completed uh, a completed business book trilogy uh, that we're going to be talking about, and then a clear path during the economic hardship, which a lot of us have experienced in 20 and then maybe in 21. And then last but not least, while you're here, please smash the subscribe button or smash the like button and crush the subscribe button. Some One, one of those, just, you know, subscribe, share, like, spank it, you know, let's help as many people as we can. Anyway, today, John Warlow here will absolutely uh, have an impact on your business and your life. John, thank you for stopping by. Did you just say spank the subscribe button? (laughs) I think that is awesome. And what a great way to start. I am going to go spank the subscribe button. Yeah, that's that's, that's it. Spank the subscribe button. You know, it's just... It's great to be with you, Bert. I, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to a chat. Yeah. So, all right. So tell us about the book. And you know what? I didn't get a copy. I got a PDF copy, which is hard to hold up. So if yeah. you happen, I see you have a copy there. Maybe hold it I up. Got here. I got one here. What's there? There you go. Yeah. The art of selling your business. Talk about what inspired you to write this. What got you into your, into this niche? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I've been doing this built to sell radio thing for five years. I've interviewed a bunch of entrepreneurs and I, I learned that there, are, there seems to be a few of them that punch way above their weight when it comes to selling. You know, we've all heard industry multiples, like my business is going to trade for three times SDE or one times revenue, whatever. These guys seem to get multiples of the prevailing sort of uh, valuation. And so I got really obsessed with what do they do that others don't? What are the secrets that they know that others don't? And I tried to distill those down into this book. It's called The Art of Selling Your Business. And it's really kind of like a, like a field guide for entrepreneurs who want to, again, punch above their weight when it comes to selling. I love it. I love it. You know, one of the things that's, that's interesting, I had a client and I, and, and I had helped him in, in, in his business and, and uh, I owned a small percentage, I think like 5% of his business. And he had gotten an offer of, a, I think it was like $15 million to sell his business. And I think after 
you know, he kind of did the evaluation and after paying off some stuff and paying off some key employees and, and taxes and everything, I think he was going to net like 5 million bucks. Uh, and which is a good chunk of money. And I think at this time in his life, he was 50. So, you know, good chunk of money when you're still fairly young. And I, you know, I asked him, well, what are you going to do once you sell your business? And he said, I don't know. I mean, this is all I've known. I've, I've had this business for 30 years. This is all I know. I said, if you don't have a, if you don't have the next step in your life, there's no point in you selling your business because <laughs> and it, 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 bottom line is he ended up not selling it. So it's, it, I'm intrigued by this whole exit strategy or selling your business because you're right. Some people get a crazy absurd amount and then some people almost get ripped off. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So look for your buddy, I think you're absolutely right. You got to be going to something. We've done research to look at why do business owners regret selling it's almost always that they regret leaving something behind. So if you've got something you want to go do, start another business, write a book, you know, start a charity, whatever, that's a recipe for a really positive experience. And, and it makes the pressure to get every last dime out of your company, much less when you're excited to go do something. In your buddy's case, he's like, I got nothing I want to go do. And that's just a disaster waiting to happen. The other thing I would say is that it sounds like in your buddy's case, there was quite a bit of debt on the business. If he was only going to get net five on a company that's worth 15, I'm assuming he had to pay off a lot of, a, a lot of debt, which is, is, you know, for capital intensive businesses normal. There's something that we talk a lot about and, and maybe your, your buddy had some sort of calculation that's similar called the freedom point. Have we ever talked about the freedom point before? No, no. Let's talk about the Okay. So, so it's kind of cool. So basically the freedom point is the point at which the sale of your company after tax and proceeds, that amount of money would fund the lifestyle you want for the rest of your life. Now you may say, okay, like what, how do you calculate your freedom point? It's simple. You figure out how much income you need every year and you multiply it by 33. That's essentially a large enough nest egg that your chances of running out of money for a very long period of time are virtually nil. Once you've got that nest egg or once the sale of your company would eclipse that amount of money, it's worth asking yourself the question, do I want to sell? Because by holding on to the company, you're effectively like the, the blackjack player at the table. He, he's got, he or she's got all of his or her assets at risk. And by holding on to the company, your buddy's making a decision that I want to stay concentrated in this business. And, and that, um, the pandemic has caused a lot of people to realize, man, if, if I'd only known now what I, what I now know, I would have sold back in 2019. Yes. And, and interestingly that you brought that up because I, one of my questions I wanted to ask you was, what do you see? What are some of the selling trends that you foresee with business owners because of COVID? Yeah, I mean, there's two things. Um, number one, business owners have brought forward their sell-by date by 20%. We've done a bunch of research on this topic. In fact, when you mentioned Value Builder in your intro, we've got um, business owners who come to us to help them improve their value. They complete a questionnaire. When they do that, 
we look at the numbers and we analyze people who completed the questionnaire for the eight months preceding COVID and the eight months after during COVID. And we compared the differences, two big differences. One is that business owners have moved up their sell by date by 20%. And number two, the proportion of people who want to sell to their kids has dropped through the floor in favor of now selling to a third party. And again, I don't, we could riff on why that would be. My guess is it's because this year has been so stressful for business owners. They don't want to pass that albatross onto their kids. And so look, COVID's had a big impact on business owners and their plans to sell. I think, you know, for some it's, it's meant their profit and loss statement is not as attractive as it was before. The counterbalancing factor, however, is that interest rates are at all time lows. And the most likely buyer of a business like the ones I think your listeners are, are running are either an individual investor or a private equity group. In both cases, they're going to borrow the money to buy the business. And when interest rates are really low, it enables them to borrow more money and at better rates, making the market more liquid. So I actually think right now is, is a really good time to sell uh, just because of the liquidity that's been flooded into the market. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that. I mean, we're our government is about to release, I think this week they're releasing a bunch of money, which I think is going to spur that acquisition epidemic. Yeah. I, you know, there, there are so many businesses that are going to be able to be bought uh, for cheap simply because they, you know, they're, they're, they've spent their, they're spent. I mean, they're, their resources are almost non-existent and, and uh, you know, management is probably uh, thinned out a little bit. And, and uh, you know, so for all the all other variables that might uh, affect that business, it, they're probably more motivated today. You know, back to what you were saying about people who are instead of waiting to sell it to their kids are going to see if they can get it now because who knows? You know, the, I think the pandemic, one of the blessings, if you will, is that it reminded us that the future is completely uncertain. So if you get a good offer today, you might consider really taking it as opposed to when my kids are ready to take it, which could happen five years, 10 years, maybe never. And then my business is gone. Yeah. It, it's such a good point, Bert. I mean, this idea of, of, the best time to sell your company is, is a question I get a ton. And, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs, when they, when they think about, well, the best time to sell is going to be when I, you know, when I reach the zenith of the sales that I'm ever going to reach and, and the economy's on fire and I'm going to sell then. And in actual, like nobody's that good at timing the sale, right? So that's a, that's a fool's errand to begin with. But number two, the best time to sell is when somebody approaches you. Why is that? It's because when somebody approaches you, you've got negotiating leverage, right? You're not going hat in hand to them saying, oh, I'd like to you know, sell you my company. They've come to you. And so now all of a sudden you're in the catbird seat, you've got negotiating leverage. And I think taking that offer seriously is really important. I did a, in the book, I write about a guy named Rand Fishkin. Have you ever had Rand on the show? No. Okay. So this great story, he wrote a book called Lost and Founder, which is really worth picking up. Great book. He starts a business called SEO Moz, builds it up to 5 million and change, growing very quickly. They're in the SaaS space. So they get high multiples. 
He gets off, he gets approached by a guy named Mark Halligan, who runs HubSpot. Halligan offers him $25 million of cash and stock to buy his business. Rand says, well, you know, we're growing like stink. And I think maybe, maybe we got a shot at hitting 10 million in revenue next year. And I've heard that companies like mine should trade at about four times revenue. So he thinks it's worth 40 million. He turns Halligan down. Anyways, long story short, Rand's business goes through a period of turmoil after he turns away Mark Halligan. He gets into all kinds of different product lines. Ultimately, the VCs or venture capitalists that invested pull Rand out of the business and he's gone. I interviewed him and I said, what, what's your net worth right now? He said, actually, John, because of the way the venture capitalists invested, I'm probably not going to get anything out of my business because VCs use something called preferred shares, which means that they get a preferred return before you as the common shareholder gets anything. I said, wow, you're not going to get anything? And I said, no, I'm probably not going to get anything. I've got an entire net worth of 800 grand, much of which I'm about to spend on elder care. And I said, okay, well, what would that 25 million bucks of cash and HubSpot stock be worth? And he said it would be worth close to $200 million based on the appreciation of HubSpot stock. I tell you that story only because the best time to sell is when a guy named like Mark Halligan shows up at your door saying, I want to buy your company. Take every acquisition offer seriously because you never know what the future will hold. Yeah. And just for our audience, if you see me doing this, I'm just taking notes because uh, a lot of the stuff is good. And I always like to review my notes and I learn better that way. But I love that idea. The best time to sell is when somebody approaches you. It makes absolute sense. You have the most leverage. And I think that, again, you know, hindsight is 2020. We all would love to say, hey, yeah, man, coulda, woulda, shoulda. You know, interestingly enough, back to my buddy, his company went from worth, you know, doing millions and millions of dollars in sales to uh, less than a million dollars in revenue now. Oh, my gosh. Because of all, you know, he's in, he's, he was affected by COVID, but prior to COVID, he was affected by, by digital. Uh, he, he, he's, he's in the newspaper ad rag business. Yeah. And so they put out, a, a, you know, I don't, uh, this thing, it's very similar to a, a penny saver yep. in the industry. Again, it's called an ad rag and it's in Spanish and all this other stuff. And so it's at one point it was doing extremely well, millions of dollars in revenue. And, and, you know, again, hindsight is 2020, but I think that, you know, you have to be a really, I don't know. You have to be a humble person, I think, to sit there and get a $25 million offer and a combination of cash and stock, which to me is one of my favorite, mm. uh, because the cash is good today. And then the stock down the road, you know, you're in some cases you get to double dip, right? HubSpot, that would be a double dip. Or, you know, if Amazon came to you and said, hey, I'm going to give you a couple of million dollars cash and a couple million dollars in stock. Thank you. Yes, immediately. But it's, it's, it's difficult because I think as an entrepreneur, this is something that you created and, mm -hmm. you know, we get attached to our businesses. It's an emotional experience, but man, it's, it's just tough to let that go. You see, I, I think of it akin to parenting. Yes. So as a parent, you know, you, you can want your kid to go to Harvard or play for, 
Alabama football, whatever. You can have these aspirations for your kid, but at the end of the day, I think healthy parents really just want their kids to be happy, functioning adults in the world, right? Like if, if we're all lucky enough to have kids that go on to be happy and functioning, that's probably like a good testament to our lives as parents. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs would be really well served to think of their job as parenting an adolescent. Your business, for it to be worth something to somebody else, has got to grow up into an entity that can live without you. And for many entrepreneurs, that's an athema. That's like the opposite of what they want to create, right? They want to create a business that's dependent on them. So it fills their ego. And it's just like the parent who can't get let go of their child. It's just not healthy. It's not healthy for the child to want to hold on to them when they want to go off to college. And equally, it's not healthy for your business. In many cases, you become your company's biggest uh, hold, like hold, you're holding your company back in many cases from growing to the next level because when your business is a big part of your net worth, you don't take chances on it, right? Right, and that that's a that's hard for your employees because they're not they're seeing you basically hold the reins so tight that they're not having a chance of promotion and so forth. So, for all those reasons, I think we'd be all better off if we thought of our company as, as an adolescent, as a 15 year old child. And your job is to, is to get them through the next couple of years so that they can go off into the world and live on their own. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Look, uh, there were some minority investors or slash owners of Facebook who are still worth billions of dollars because this tiny percentage they had in Facebook. And I think, that is uh, still a great thing to be able to say, hey, I own a tiny percentage of Facebook. That, that's still a, a nice little, what do you call it? Uh, trophy? Trophy, thank you. You sure. know, uh, as opposed to saying, hey, I own 100% of this business that barely makes it. Right. And, <laughs> and, and for a lot, of, a lot of guys and gals listening to this, they may be... Uh, best served by a private equity deal. So a private equity deal is where a private equity company will come in and do what's called a majority recapitalization, which means they buy the majority of your shares, but not all of your shares. And so you have to keep, say, 30 or 40% of your shares in a new entity that they create. You're often tasked to run that new entity, but you've put 60% of the value in your genes. And so it's for a lot of people who aren't ready to retire yet, but still want to diversify, don't want to be so concentrated in one asset. It's a great situation because you, again, you get to keep uh, your business, your job, yet you've liquidated 60% of it or 70% of it. And so that's called a majority recapitalization. Now there's lots of downsides to selling to private equity, but that's one of the tremendous benefits of selling to, to a PE firm. Yeah, absolutely. You know what, but, but here's the deal. And, and I, that, that I think most, most entrepreneurs don't understand. It's a risk either way. It's a risk to stay in. First of all, it's a risk getting into business. It's a risk staying in business. It's a risk selling that business. It's all risk. Uh, the question is, can you live with, you know, the risk? Can you live with, in your, in your example there of a private equity firm coming in and giving you, you know, 60 or 70% of the company value? To me, that's, 
to me personally with, again, I'm, I'm almost 60. So looking back at all the mistakes that I've made, man, I wish I would have been able to, you know, to get some PE in there and, and, you know, give me, give me a value, you know, give me the, to me, it's the best of both worlds. Yeah, it can be. For sure. For sure. There's a story in the book, a woman named Sherry Deutschman who sold her company based in Nashville, Tennessee. She, uh, she sold the private equity and she ended up regretting it. The reason was that they undermined the culture she'd created. Mm. So it's a goofy example, but one of the things that Sherry did in her company was she did profit sharing and it was a monthly check that everyone all the way down to rank and file employees got and the private equity group bought her company, paid a nice multiple, had her roll a little bit of her equity in. But as soon as they got out of the business, they realized, wow, this profit sharing is a big, big expense. Let's get rid of that. And Deutschman was devastated because part of what she was so proud of is, is the, the culture she had created and the profit sharing plan was a big part of that. Ultimately, she ended up selling the rest of her shares and regretting who she sold it to. So that's a cautionary tale in, 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 in essence, but it can be avoided if you, when you're negotiating the sale of your company, you make it clear what is and isn't on the table. In this case, she could have probably protected that profit sharing plan if it was that important to her. You see, the problem with selling to private equity is they're going to try to professionalize your company, air quotes, professionalize. Yeah, Part yeah. of that is, basically ripping up all of your policies and making them more like an MBA policy. Right. And that can feel like open heart surgery if you're not ready for it. Uh, because again, you're likely the author of those policies. So take a page out of Sherry Deutschman's book. And if there's stuff that is really important to you, make sure you spell it out in, in, in a sale to a private equity group. Yeah. You know, to add to that, I remember at one point when I had, um, I don't know. I think we had like 12, maybe 15 employees because it's a small, close knit community, if you will. It was pretty common for me as the boss there to loan my employees money, you hmm. know, and then have have it deducted from their paycheck, which, of course, you know, you would never expect that from a quote, real company, you know, so, so it's some of those things that, uh, that kind of make your company different when you cannot compete with the benefits and the salary, you know, they're, they're, those are some of the ways that, that small businesses compete. They, they do these little weird loans or they give you additional time off or, you know, all this other stuff. Uh, and to Sherry's case there, that's a pretty sweet deal, man. To every month, give your employees a check from profit sharing. That's ridiculously sweet. So mm -hmm. pass off to her. And uh, so, so let me ask you this. What do you see as some of the biggest mistakes that owners make when they sell their company? Oh, man. I mean, I mean that, that's essentially what the book's about. There's hundreds of them. But I mean, let's think about it. Um, you know, one of the one of the big ones that is relatively easy to avoid is answering the question, what do you want for your company? It's a very common question. Um, uh, you know, there's a, there's a story in the book where one of the entrepreneurs that I interviewed walked in uh, to an acquirer's office expecting to have a sort of peer-to-peer -peer conversation with the acquirer. Uh, he hadn't 
learned that there was an acquisition on the table. It was just him and the, and the acquirer, he thought, having a conversation. He walks into the acquirer's office and there is the acquirer flanked by his chief uh, counsel and his chief financial officer. And the first thing out of his mouth is, what do you want for your company? And, and, and this founder was on his back heels and, and didn't realize that it was gonna turn into an acquisition conversation immediately and blurted out his number. And instead of engaging in a conversation around that number, the, the, found, the, the acquirer just turned to his head counsel and his CFO and said, okay, I think we can get a deal done, which is code for don't pay a penny less than the number he just mentioned. Uh, sorry, don't pay a penny more than the number he just mentioned, because effectively, when you put a price on your company, when you reveal your number to the acquirer, you're putting a ceiling on by, beyond which they will never pay a dime more. And so it's part of the art of selling is that he, he or she who utters the price first tends to lose. So when you get asked that question, I think you need to defer and say simply, look, you know, I'm a reasonable guy. I'm a reasonable woman. I, uh, I'll accept and really entertain seriously any serious acquisition offer. So looking yeah. forward to what you have in mind. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, I, I like that. I like that. It's a great, I think it's a great uh, way to start the conversation, see where their head's at. Uh, the other thing that I've learned is give them a, uh, a spread, if you will, a range. Hey, mm -hmm. companies like mine might sell for, you know, 10 times multiple of whatever, right? So I'm looking between, you know, 3 million and 6 million. And so, you know, you have all sorts of room or, you know, whatever, 30 million and 60 million, you have all sorts of, you know, room. But I love the idea of I'm willing to entertain any kind of serious offer. What do you have in mind? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that uh, one of the things that I've noticed, and, and it's really weird, is that you can have people who are pretty proficient at negotiating, let's say sales, closing sure. deals all day long is what they do. But when they get into selling their business, they become like babes in the, in the woods. They're like, <laughs> I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to speak the language anymore. And it's just a weird thing because it's, there's, I think just so much emotion connected to it. And you've hit the nail on the head. I think Bert, it's emotional, right? It's, it's your, it's your life's work. It's your namesake in some cases, right? And it is very emotional. And so you've got to find a way to, to make it less emotional. Like for an acquirer, these guys and gals are mercenaries, right? Like they, there is nothing emotional about acquiring a business. If you're a corporate development head for uh, Google, or if you're a private equity firm partner, there's nothing emotional about an acquisition. And you've got to somehow strip out the emotion from the conversation. Um, you know, one of the other things that you can, you know, the, the mistakes that, that owners make is they get emotionally sort of wrapped up in this idea of getting a certain multiple, right? They're like, well, my EO buddy got six times EBITDA and I'm not selling for a penny less than seven. And, and they get very kind of wrapped up in this and it becomes a sense of pride about what multiple you got. What I would encourage folks to remember, and this was some of the lessons I learned uh, firsthand, is to ask yourself a multiple of what? Is it a multiple of your trailing 12 months earnings? Okay. Is it a multiple of your last completed fiscal year? That's different. Is it a multiple of your current or projected fiscal year? Is it an adjusted multiple? 
one of the things we forget a lot is there is a, an adjustment process whereby you go through and normalize your profit and loss statement. What does that mean? It means basically you try to project your p and in a, in a lens through which an acquirer would, would, would be running your business. So if you pay yourself 400 grand a year and it only would take a general manager $80,000 a year to do your job, you're going to strip out the 400 grand from your salary and put and replace it with $80,000. You're all of a sudden increasing the profitability in the eyes of an acquirer by $320,000. That's the adjustments process that you go through when you sell your company. And so again, I, I just, uh, I laugh when people get really obsessed around a multiple because the question I think you want to ask is a multiple of what? Yes. And, and, and to your point, yeah, sometimes our ego is our biggest enemy, right? It's, it's amazing how our ego can completely screw things up and, and what we feel is unfair or you know, whatever we think justice is, it's like, yeah, time, time to move on. And, and I think that sometimes it's just better to find somebody to be uh, your spokesperson and, and, uh, <laughs> and maybe get you kind of uh, separated from the transaction. I remember, yeah. you know, in several different real estate deals, right? Real estate becomes the same thing. Well, I, you know, Anyway, not to be- I bought those window coverings. I went with my wife to the store and I, I think they're beautiful. And like the buyer's like, I, you know, get rid of the window covering. I mean, it's a very emotional thing. It's one of the reasons uh, I'm a big fan of using an intermediary, like an M&A professional or business broker. That's not what I do for a living. So I don't want that to sound self-serving, but I do think they, they, they are very important to a transaction. Part of what they also do, in addition to their sort of a foil against the, the emotional aspect, part of the job of the M&A professional is to create competitive tension, meaning their job is to find multiple buyers for your company. And that's important, obviously, because it's going to increase the likelihood that you sell your company. It's going to increase the value you get for your business, better deal terms, et cetera, if they know there are competitors. But one of the secrets, though, to getting multiple offers is that you'll not end up regretting your decision to sell because you left money on the table. Yeah. One of the other big reasons we see owners regret their decision to sell, number one is not having something to go, to go to, but the second most common regret is wondering if they left money on the table. They're you know, drinking their lemonade on the porch, rocking in their rocket chair and think, man, it all of a sudden kind of dawns on them. Like, what if I left money on the table? Right? They hear about a buddy on the golf course who sold for more than they did, and they think, Jesus, what have, I, what have I done? You'll never know for certain if you got taken advantage of if you sell to one acquirer. But if you've got three offers, and all three are kind of in the same ballpark, well, you can feel reasonably confident that you're probably getting fair market value for your company. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely, I love that. You know, I look at it, again, it just from uh, uh, my experience, and that is, you know, just forget about it. You, you, you did it. You, got, you did the best you could with the data you had and move on. Because you can sit there and say, woulda, coulda, shoulda all day long. And, and maybe the person that acquires your company, they had more experience, more capital. They had a better management team. And so they take your company 
and maybe they double its sales in, in a year or two and you're going, man, but you, you know, maybe that would have never happened for you because you didn't have all the resources they did. And John, I want to ask you this. So if you're being acquired by an industry giant, any advice to somebody who's up against, you know, the big boys? Yeah, watch out for retrading. So retrading is when a large acquirer makes an offer to buy your business. They usually do that in using a document called a letter of intent or LOI. And that includes a no shop clause, meaning that you have to agree to stop negotiating with anybody else. It's kind of like getting engaged. You kind of have to stop <laughs> any sort of uh, relations with anyone else. It's the same thing, but in a business context. Your letter of intent is an engagement. It's called a no shop clause that you sign as part of an LOI. Once you sign that, however, your balance of power, the negotiating leverage you have swings heavily into the hands of the acquirer. Now, all of a sudden, they've got all the leverage because they know you're not negotiating with anyone. And they, in some cases, use that leverage in a nefarious way. They do something called retrading. So they commit to buying your business for whatever. Let's say they say, well, we're going to buy your business for a million dollars. And you say, great, I'll accept. And then 60 days later, you're about to have the check clear the bank. And they call you up and say, actually, I know we said a million, but we think it's closer to 850. And, And you say, you pound your fist on the table and say, no, you promised me a million. And they say, well... We just think it's 850. <laughs> and they essentially use the fact that you've bought the ski chalet or the new car or you've told your spouse and they use that as leverage against you. And so Barry Hinckley told me the secret to inoculating yourself against this, this thing called retrading. It's when you sign the letter of intent, you're going to stand up, you walk across the table in the negotiating room and you shake the hand of the acquirer and you look them in the eyes and you say, I will do this deal on one condition. Acquirer says, what's that? And you say, no retrading. And, and, and that really telegraphs to the acquirer that you're a sophisticated seller, that you're not going to get taken advantage of, that you understand that retrading is a game that they're susceptible to playing. Man, that's awesome. Right there. That's like a million dollar nugget right there. How many of us have been on the other side of that retrading for whatever reason? I've seen it happen with, with not only selling a business, I've seen it happen when you're, when you're buying a piece of equipment or, or, you know, selling a piece of equipment, you know, they, 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 at the last minute, as you said, you know, you're salivating to get that payment and you made all these, all these forecasts, all these projections and Hey, we know we promised you a million dollars, but yeah, 850 is the best we can do. And man, oh. Sometimes it's legit. Like sometimes you'll, you'll, you know, you've got projections in your, in your plan and you miss your numbers during diligence, right? You say you're going to hit X in sales and you hit X minus 20%. That's legitimate retraining. An acquirer will use that as a negotiating tactic. They'll say, look, you missed your numbers. We're going to drop our price. That's legitimate. I'm talking about illegitimate retrading, which they do just because they know they can. That's really where the no retrading handshake will, will benefit you. 
Right, right. And you mentioned the adjustment period. You know, I remember uh, Wayne Huizinga, who, um, for those who don't know who he is, he was, he took Blockbuster, made Blockbuster really big. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, AutoNation, Waste Management. The guy was just a friggin' machine. And I remember him talking to me about the way he would acquire a company is he would they would they would settle on a price and his whole thing was yeah i'll pay you that price you know we'll pay you you know 50 percent now and then 50 percent you know 90 days from now once we've gone through all the adjustments and really see what your company's all about because he says it would never fail that you know it, it's kind of normal for a business owner especially the smaller they are the, you know, because there's more emotional attachment to it, the bigger they talk about this and that. And, and sometimes they're, they're, you know, what they, what they thought was there wasn't there. Yeah. And so that yeah. was written into his acquisition language that they could adjust that number if they found discrepancies. And again, back to what you're saying, that's a legitimate excuse. Hey, you promised me that you were doing $2 million in revenue. You're actually doing 1.6. We got to, we got to change the numbers. Yeah. And once you get emotionally committed to a number in your head as a seller, it's very difficult to walk away or, or have that, you know. So look, I would, I would counsel you as an entrepreneur to do something called pre-diligence, which effectively is getting all of your, your financials done in advance so that they're bulletproof. I, 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 there's a story in the book of the guys behind, you know, Barefoot Wine. Have you ever had yes. Barefoot Wine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trader Joe's, whatever. So Bonnie and her husband, whose name escapes me right now, uh, I believe their surname is Houlihan, started Barefoot Wine. So they decide they're going to sell the company and they figure they've got one shot at selling it to the biggest winemaker in America, which is Ian J. Gallo. So what they do is pre-diligence. They effectively put all their numbers together, all the binders. In their case, they were physical binders, the marketing binder and the sales binder and the finance binder so that everything was documented to in detail, right? And so what that does is it does two things. Number one, it eliminates the need or the likelihood that they're going to retrade because you've got all the numbers there. There's no ambiguity to them whatsoever. But here's what Bonnie told me. She said, the second reason is a hidden reason. Michael is her husband's name. The second reason is a hidden reason. What putting the binders does is it communicates to the buyer that you're serious, that you're dressed for the dance, that you're going to sell your company. They've got one shot, but if they don't take it, you're going somewhere else. And so they wanted to look as professional, tight and buttoned down for E&J Gallo. So it made E&J Gallo say, oh, geez, if we don't buy them, our next biggest competitor or biggest rival is going to buy them. They didn't want that. So in any ways, Barefoot sold to E&J Gallo. And uh, now the Hulahans live on some retreat in Napa. It's a, great, it's, a, it's a great example, I think, of why pre-diligence is worth doing. Yes. Well, yeah, not, not only do you know your numbers, but, you know, you're prepared. Yeah. And as you mentioned, it sends that message of preparedness and you know, if you don't buy us, somebody else will, because we know what our numbers are. We know who, we know what we're doing. We may be small compared to you guys, but still look how professional we are. So I think it's a great pre-diligence. I, I think it's a great strategy. All right. So what, 
would be your thoughts or your advice on getting, let's say, a possible, I don't know, offer or, or, or kind of maybe, you know, how do you get the word out there that you want to sell without coming across as desperate or hungry or whatever, you know, so how do you make the offer without making the offer? <laughs> yeah. And there's a whole lexicon, there's a whole vocabulary of words that we talk about that are kind of uh, hidden names or hidden words used to define something. So I would approach an organization and about a strategic partnership. So the word strategic partnership is uh, gives you a deniability. It means that most acquirers, when you approach them and say, we'd love to discuss a strategic partnership, most sophisticated companies will go, huh, I wonder if we should buy this company. But it also gives you the ability to like, plausibly deny that that was your intent, right? You can certainly say that actually acquisition wasn't my goal. It was purely partnership. But partnership is one of those words that can be really effective. And it also allows you not to look desperate, which is a death knell for selling your company. You want to obviously negotiate from positional strength. And it's, it's funny because not only is it, a, is it sort of a, a way or a tactic, it's also very true. Most of the, the deals that get done and most of the people I wrote about in the book, they had some pre-existing relationship with the acquirer. Oftentimes that is some sort of partnership. I, you know, one of the people I, I wrote about is a woman named Stephanie Breedlove, who built Breedlove and Associates, which is a, a payroll company. She sold to care.com, which is like an Angie's list of care providers. Well, she had a marketing relationship, a content sharing agreement with care.com. And so when Breedlove was ready to sell, she approached care who had like 7 million subscribers and said, if 1% of your 7 million subscribers buy my payroll service, that's like 70,000 customers. That's like 10 times the size of our business today. Anyway, she sold a, like a $9 million payroll company for something like 54 million bucks. <laughs> Unbelievable exit. But CARE was a partner, right? They were a pre-existing relationship. So I think the word partner can be both important from a negotiation tactical perspective, but also just knowing who the likely acquirers are for your company. I love that strategy. That, that to me is a great, great strategy. And, and the nice thing about it is you might get an actual strategic partner <laughs> out right. of the deal or you might get a buyer. So either way you win. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rob Walling, another guy I interviewed recently, uh, he built a company called um, a drip. It's like an email marketing software, builds it to $2 million in revenue. And his, his, he's got the number in his head because they're a SaaS company and he figures it's worth a ton of money. Walling <laughs> gets an acquisition offer. And instead of just accepting, it was like an outlandish offer in the end, instead of accepting, he said, no, I'd rather do a partnership. And so he used partnership in, a, in the opposite way. He effectively deferred the acquirer and say, or put them off and said, let's do a partnership. Let's do a partnership. Anyways, he got the original offer for, I think it was around two times revenue. Ultimately, they settled somewhere in the nine to 14 times revenue. Like an unbelievable, again, that's a SaaS company, software as a service company that's, that has its own stratosphere of multiples. Right. The, the point is that he put off the acquirer. He effectively, you know, uh, enhancing their desire to buy his business by saying, no, let's not do an acquisition. Let me, let's just partner together. Ultimately, they made such an unbelievable offer that he chose to, to in fact be acquired. Sure, sure. That's that. That was a sweet, sweet strategy on his part. It worked yeah. out great. 
All right, so let's talk about what you do, uh, Value Builder Systems. So what is it that you actually do for companies? As you mentioned earlier, you don't really get involved in the, in, in the, in, in the M&A portion of it. So who's your, who's your ideal customer? Who, who are people who come to you? Yeah, so we help entrepreneurs build the value of their company leading up to an exit. Uh, we've got something like 55,000 business owners who've gone through and used our platform. Average business, when they start with us, gets an offer of 3.5 times pre-tax profit. Those that achieve a score of 90 or greater on the Value Builder questionnaire, which is sort of our uh, questionnaire that we have people complete, uh, are getting offers of 7.1 times pre-tax profit, more than double. So there's, it's a whole software platform. We license it to advisors, coaches, um, consultants, accountants, and uh, they use it as a platform to help their business owner clients improve the value of their company leading up to an exit. So you're like the pre-diligence. -pre That's right. Yeah. It, you know, you can sort of think of us a little bit like... Um, you know, if you use a home, selling a home as, you know, when you're going to sell your home, you can do staging yeah. where you paint and bake cookies. But prior to the staging, you probably want to do some renovation, right? Like you want to curb out the kitchen or whatever. What Value Builder is, is all the renovation stuff that you want to do to make sure your business will attract the highest possible multiple when you go ready to get ready to sell. So, John, why don't you tell me about uh, the 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 free gift or, or the, for those individuals who bought the book, where can they go to get those bonuses? Yeah. Just head over to built to sell.com slash selling. And there is a whole package of give, goodies that folks who order the book from that page receive. One of the most interesting one is we put together a seven part series with entrepreneurs in the book where they are going to take questions live on a webinar series. So seven different events. Uh, that's just one of the many gifts that folks get for ordering from that page. So yeah, it's just built to sell.com slash selling. I love that. I love that. And, and the value of going to a live event where you can ask entrepreneurs who've kind of been through it questions and get that feedback is priceless. You know, it just, it's priceless. How do you put a price tag on that? They're buying a, what is it? A 20 or $25 book and they get to experience all that. So it's built to sell.com slash selling. And of course, you know, spanking the like button. <laughs> I'm glad you ended with that. Bert, it was a pleasure. All right, John, thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Sounds great.